Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Previously on Mentally Yours. For a couple of years I lashed out and I had the anger and all of this stuff, but I said I just learned to deal with it and try and move on with my life. I'd quickly realized that if I had any animosity or anger that stayed with me, then my life would be completely a different story. I think really it's learning to talk about it, learning to channel what you're feeling in a positive way, whether it's writing about it, whether it's listening to music, whether it's, you know, talking to a friend. I think I only really learned how to do that in sort of at the end of my teens, I think. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. My name's Ellen, and today we're talking to Ali Golden, who's just released a memoir called A Good Soldier about her life with her mum, who had borderline personality disorder. We're going to be talking about how that affected her upbringing and the support she wishes she had when she was younger. I wrote this book called A Good Soldier, primarily so that I could help other people who might be in a similar situation with a mentally ill parent or loved one. The fact is these situations can last a very, very long time, and that becomes extremely difficult for the person who is trying to support them. Specifically in my situation, my mother was mentally ill with both depression and borderline personality disorder from around the time that I was a toddler. And I was eight years old the first time she said she wanted to end her life. She was very frank with my younger brother and I about that. I spent the whole of my childhood trying to coax her back to life. I thought that with the right actions with the right words that I could control the situation. And as long as my mother was alive, then I had won this challenge. The thing that I think uh, characterized my relationship most with my mom was inconsistency. If my mom 
had been awful, if she'd been universally mean or abusive, it would have been much easier to walk away from the situation and just say, this is completely dysfunctional, I'm done. But the fact is my mother was a good mother in many respects. She was the first person to support my writing. Whenever I had a problem with a friend, she always wanted to help me through it. She was um, as she doing a good a job as she was capable of doing. And so that made things very complicated. And in the end, um, you know, I, I lived to be 30 years old with constantly fearing for my mother's life and trying to lead her to the right help, whether it was therapy or medications or social services programs or inpatient programs. And I think my mother just was too ill to really take advantage of those things. And the things that are important for loved ones to remember is that you can do everything you can to support someone, but if they aren't ready, willing, or able to get treatment, that's not your fault. There's only so much you can do. And uh, the situation with my mother um, ended when I was 30 years old and, and she did die by suicide, which we had feared for many, many years, but uh, that was the end of her journey and the end of mine when it comes to uh, my relationship with my mom. You sound quite understanding now and you can say, you know, she was doing the best that she possibly could, but when you were a child, how did you view her? Were you kind of worried about her primarily or did you feel a lot of anger towards her? Yeah, I, I think I did feel anger because it seemed to me as a child that she wasn't doing what she needed to do as a parent. And I was a little bit resentful that I had to be the parent. Um, I was angry at her at the way she just neglected my brother. My brother was younger and she was just too sick to really take care of him. And so we kids were left on our own. Um, my mother also was very combative. Um, depending on the day, she had all sorts of insults for me and my brother, and uh, that was hard to deal with. I was never quite good enough for her. That's part of borderline personality disorder is you split people white and black. You know, mm -hmm. that's just how it's, I mean, not to use that as a, you know, derogatory thing, but that's known in the borderline personality um, community as being something that happens. And uh, she, she really was quite negative toward me. So I, I was angry. And as I got older, I was uh, a little more angry because I tried to get her all this help and it just didn't seem like she was motivated to do anything. And that was very frustrating. While at the same time, she was imposing on me as in a, in a manipulative form, trying to get me to do certain things, say certain things. And as I got a little bit older, that became more apparent. So it was uh, more anger producing as opposed to worry producing, but I definitely mm. always had both for sure. Was she aware that she had these mental illnesses? You know, she was always, Ellen, quite comfortable with the depression diagnosis. Mm. I don't think, we, we really didn't hear the term borderline thrown much around um, until the very end. Mm. And I don't think she really thought, and this is similar to other people with borderline, I don't really think she thought she had a problem with her interactions with people, with her relationships with people, which is the prime characterization of borderline personality disorder. I, I don't think my mother really felt that way. I think she thought that everyone was doing things to her and that the world was unfair to her, not that she was actually acting on the world and causing people to respond in a certain way. Um, even at the end, it didn't really seem like she took full responsibility for that. Um, and that's difficult because if you don't know what your own role is or you don't think you have 
action that you can take to improve your life, that you have no agency, um, then it's difficult. Also, this borderline is still not really spoken about very much. Like, I didn't really hear it or hear about it until like maybe a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's not very well known at all. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And it's a lot of times confused with just people who are really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. They, they're just difficult people to deal with. And, and as I said, they, they struggle with their relationships with other people, um, how to engage with people, how to have empathy for other people, how to, how to see things from their side. And so it, it is a personality disorder that is described in the DSM, but I think it's because it's a personality thing. I think people sometimes feel like, oh, well, that's just the way this person is. It's not a mental mm. illness per se, even though it is. But I think yeah. people... No, definitely. I think there's all these misconceptions still around BPD. It's quite interesting how it hasn't really caught up with the conversation about, say, depression and anxiety and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. You're right. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about mental health now and you describe yourself as a mental health advocate. How do you think your experience with your mom kind of inspired you and pushed you into that role? Well, there were two parts of it, Ellen. For, for one thing, I felt um, very isolated as a child. I felt like a lot of people were aware of the situation, but didn't necessarily know what to do to help or weren't in a position to help. So I was, I was kind of left on my own thinking I was the only one going through this. And it was the same thing when I experienced suicide. I felt extreme alienation, like I couldn't tell people the truth, that nobody would know what I was going through. Uh, it was embarrassing in a way, it was shameful in a way. And so after a year or so had passed, I got involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is a very large organization here in the States that's dedicated to supporting survivors, really. Uh, it's also dedicated to preventing suicide, of course, but I think recognizing that suicide has patterns, um, that suicide mm. runs in families, supporting survivors is really important. And so I got involved with them and started doing volunteer work, helping survivors cope with what had just happened, or in some cases, what had happened years ago that they didn't feel like they had dealt with properly. And so that's one thing. And I've also been going around speaking about how to support loved ones who have mental illness, how to take care of yourself, how to recognize um, the signs of suicide and pending suicide, the myths and facts associated with it, because I find there's a lot of misinformation that goes around. And uh, really, it's my privilege to be able to do this work, because if I can help one person who was going through what I went through, then everything that I do is worth it, because it helps that person's life in a tremendous way. How do you take care of yourself? Do you feel like your growing up experience has made you more aware of your own mental health and watching out for kind of those triggers? This is a great question, Ellen. And I would love to be able to say I came out unscathed from this situation. Mm. And I think for many years, I, I thought that I was super resilient and that I had just done brilliantly compared to how things could have gone. But as I've gotten a little bit older, I recognize there are permanent scars when you're raised by someone who doesn't know how to engage with other people, and she was my primary parent. My dad was not around a lot when I was a child, so she was the primary influence. You learn certain ways of relating that are not productive and mm. helpful, and I have struggled with that my entire life. I, I have struggled with it with friends, with romantic partners, and all I try to do is better myself. You know, I've been in therapy myself. There's nothing shameful about that. 
And I am constantly vigilant about it because it is a lifelong struggle. And I did adapt certain patterns. Um, I'm not borderline, thankfully. Um, but you know, there are certain things that you do and that's something that you learn from your parents as, as your primary role model. So I'm very vigilant about it. I'm very concerned with my relationships with other people and making sure that they are mutually beneficial and effective and just trying to do the best I can, which is all I think anyone can do, but particularly someone with a history of childhood trauma. It's one day at a time and it's doing the best you can. How do you deal with being kind of hypervigilant of that? You sound like you could be so aware of not doing the wrong thing that it could become quite stressful. When you give and give because you are worried that it won't be enough for that person or, you know, they have to deal with things about you that may or may not be real. Um, it may just be in your head. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it can be really stressful and it's not natural to me to have mm. very close relationships. It, it just, I just never learned how to do it. So as an adult, you, you learn and you do the best you can. Cause I feel like everyone can kind of relate to maybe not liking things about their parents and not wanting to be like their parents. So kind of overcorrecting. But when there's mental illness involved, there's a whole other level because you're right, you've learned those patterns from them and also there's a genetic factor. What kind of patterns could you give as examples that you've fallen into in part because of watching your own mom go through that? A great example is actually something that's been up, up for debate. And I'm sure anyone who's listening who, who reads A Good Soldier can feel free to chime in. Um, but the whole middle section of a good soldier takes a little bit of a, a detour and talks about my development of romantic relationships. And mm -hmm. my mother's role is, is more limited in that section. And the reason that I did that is because that's the area where my mother had the most pronounced effect on my development. I and mean, when I first started dating people when I was a teenager and through my early um, young adulthood, I really did not know how to have a relationship with a man um, or with, mm -hmm. even with a boy. Like it just was problematic. I was needy. I was defensive. I thought that, you know, they were out to get me, that they didn't love me. And I really, in a sense, pushed people away who cared about me. And that had, unfortunately, having those early failures from a relationship perspective shaped the person that I would become as an adult, which is a person who's much more um, reserved, removed, um, not trustworthy. And so, so I think it's, it's a very clear example of how learning my mother's patterns shaped me initially and then how I did basically a 180 to stop being like that when the 180 is not necessarily good either. And what I'm trying to do today, now that I'm, um, I've turned 40, is try to find a happy medium between those two things, between caring too much and caring too little. And I think this is something that a lot of kids learn naturally from well-adjusted parents who they have a normal attachment with. But unfortunately for me, and I think many people listening out there, that that was not the case. So we have to make it up as we go along. Going back to when you were growing up, um, how did you first notice that something was not quite right or that your childhood was different to other kids? I noticed that my childhood was different because my mother was in bed all the time. Mm. Uh, she was not able to hold down a job. She stopped doing basic parental things fairly early on. 
Um, there was constant conflict in the house, both with my father and uh, my brother and myself. Uh, she cried a lot. She threatened to end her life. She wasn't involved with any of the things that my friends, my parents were involved in. She wasn't involved in school. She didn't do volunteer work. It just seemed like every day was kind of a struggle for her. And when I would go over to other people's houses and meet their parents, I saw that that was not the norm. And I wasn't really exposed to anyone else like my mother. So I knew that she was different and that this was different and that I was basically on my own in many respects. I mean, as I mentioned before, there were certain areas where my mother was a good parent, um, but it was, I would say, more the exception. Mm. Were you able to talk to anyone at the time? Not really. Um, Hmm. And this is why I do the advocacy work that I do. And this is why I wrote the book, because there wasn't, I mean, again, we talk about borderline personality disorder, people just think the person's really annoying. Um, That was the the attitude that my relatives took, that my mother was just so hard to deal with that they were just not going to have any interaction with the family. And that included the children. So, you know, the children were, my brother and I were isolated from our family. Um, We did have wonderful grandparents who we visited, but they lived in California. We lived in Maryland outside of D.C., so that's quite quite far away. We didn't get to see them as much as would have been helpful. And uh, at school, there were some teachers who were more supportive. I remember one time when my parents got divorced or were getting separated, we were put in a support group at school. And I remember thinking... My parents getting a divorce is kind of the least of my problems. Like, how am I going to take care of my mother? And how am I going to take care of my brother and myself? Like, that was a bigger problem. Like, there's no other adult in the house to to help with that. So really, them getting divorced was not not the thing I should have been in counseling for. But Mm. that that was where I got some help. And frankly, I was always, Ellen, a a very high-functioning person, even as a young child. So there weren't any, like, red flags because I was a straight-A student who was involved in after-school activities. I didn't seem to be depressed. I didn't seem to have serious problems. So I, you know, there was nothing, I think, really wrong for people to identify, so. Yeah, it's difficult because you are, as an adult separate from the situation, looking out for those warning signs, they're doing badly at school, they seem really upset. And if someone is well-adjusted, it's hard to intervene. Yeah, how would they know? I mean, I had friends from childhood who didn't know any of this until I published the book. Like they were like, really all this was going on. Like they were there, (laughs) but it's like, I mean, it's just, it's hard. How would people know? What do you wish that children growing up with mentally ill parents, what kind of support should they be having? What is the key to intervening and giving them the support they need? I think the key is for parents to know what they're dealing with and to help um, to help get support for the children because I think the children aren't necessarily going to reach out themselves and Mm -hmm. and get it so parents being aware of their own mental illness and the impact that has on children I think is really important I think it's really important for relatives to not take the behavior and I know this is hard to do I face this in a situation in my adult life with another family, it's hard for relatives to intervene, I think. Mm. But if you don't want to intervene and and do something drastic, like try to get the kid out of the situation, at least serve as like a positive role model for the child and someone that the child can talk to who's stable, who they know what type of behavior to expect. 
so that they can see that not all adults are like this and there is someone that they can trust and rely on. Um, that would probably be the biggest message because there, there really isn't a lot that other people can do mm-hmm. when the child doesn't show signs of, of trauma. I mean, obviously the child does show signs of trauma, then you get professional help for that. But if, if it's a situation like mine where, you know, you know the situation isn't ideal, but you don't have the details, well, then you, you reach out to the child and try to develop a relationship. Because if I had even one person like that, I think it would have made a huge difference. I mean, I had my grandparents, sort of, um, but they were far away. Um, even as an adult, it's been super interesting, and I, and not in a good way, Alan, that mm-hmm. I've had several people claim that they want to be like a mother figure to me, um, and kind of more like the idea of that than the reality. And yeah. so that's kind of the other thing that I would caution is both with children and with adult children who have gone through something like this, like don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't promise things that you're not going to deliver because that's going to end up hurting the child more mm-hmm. than if you had done anything. So, I mean, I want people to be proactive and to do what they feel needs to be done, but at the same time, be realistic about what your own state is, what your own desire, willingness, and ability is to, to help a child cope and even an adult child. Yeah. It's not as simple as stepping in and being like, I'm going to rescue you from this situation. Everything's fine. Yeah. It's, it's work. It's providing like proper support and getting the parent the help that they need. That's right. Is it kind of like if you have a mental illness, you're just not really designed to be a parent or are there ways that you can get around that? Uh, and I'll be honest, I had the same concerns. Mm. I, I have two children, but I was really hesitant to have biological children for this exact yeah. reason. And what my husband told me at the time was, you know, when you're adopting a kid, you don't know what you're going to get. Like you could get this, you could get something else. Like everybody has stuff they're going to pass on. And there's such a I mean, it is genetic. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But there are so many other factors involved with whether someone develops mental illness and what kind of mental illness they develop and whether, I mean, there are very few mental illnesses that can't be treated at all. Um, I mean, there are some. My my mother wasn't treated successfully. But the other thing I want to point out about my mother is she had a prescription drug addiction as well, which greatly impacted her ability to be treated. So I don't want to just say outright, oh, my mother was untreatable. Like Mm -hmm. if my mother had detoxed from drugs, I think we would have seen it potentially seen a different outcome, but she was not willing to do that. So uh, in terms of becoming a parent, I think um, the biological question is a good one, but it's one that has counter arguments for sure. And I think if you want to have a biological child, you should. And then you just try to do what we did, which is catch signs early that things are Mm -hmm. not Great. And the thing about my husband and I is that we're, you mentioned the word vigilance. We're very vigilant about our children's mental health. Our son has a temperament that is not ideal. He's very negative. He, he's very, he thinks the world is out to get him. Now, this is the kind of thing where you can imagine it develops into a mental illness at some point. And mm-hmm. it, it very well might. He's 10 years old, but we're watching it so carefully. He's already been in therapy. Um, I'm not opposed to drugs, if that's eventually necessary. And when it comes to, you know, the un- very unfortunate situation of, of teenagers who, who, you know, die by suicide more frequently than other groups, a lot of parents are caught completely off guard by that. Like they had no idea the kid was struggling. I think people with a history of mental illness in their family are going to be much more likely to see the signs of such a thing and actually be able to stop it. So that's the first thing I would say about um, parenting. The second thing I'd say about parenting is that when you grow up with a dysfunctional parent, you know what not to do. 
And I'm a member of several Facebook groups where people are raising their children very differently based on what, um, what they learned was a terrible way to parent. So it, it can go both ways. I mean, I think that it's, it's right to be concerned Mm. about the cycle because I think that we do again, tend to repeat the patterns of our parents. So, you know, whether you have children that are biologically or not, um, whether you're influencing someone else's life in any way, whether it's children or not, it's something to be aware of and just to be a little bit conscious of so that mm. you you can interact with people, children and otherwise in the most effective way possible. I think you're right. Like, I think if you're conscious of it, that's kind of a major step because you will be more aware of things. You will be more aware of mental health in general and yep. more able to spot those signs. We are so vigilant in our family I and mean, the kids know if something's bothering them <clears throat> they can talk to us we we watch signs for things i mean kids are still young but i mean you can bet when they're teenagers i'm going to be watching this stuff really closely and i think i'm watching it more closely than people who have no experience with it how do you talk to your children about mental health well i don't talk to them first of all about my mother's story i feel mm-hmm. they're too young um for yeah. that so they have not heard that story they probably won't hear it I I suspect when my son's around 12 that'll be the right time he's very very bright so 12 or 13 I think but until then they won't hear the whole story but what I what I say to them is you know depression is a real thing mental health is a real thing that we have to watch just as we watch our physical health and so if you're not feeling well if you're I talk about issues of negativity and how to reframe things with my son like, okay, well, let's look at it's classic cognitive behavioral therapy. It's let's look at the number of positive things that happen in your life today. And let's look at the list of negative, which list is longer. And uh, he's old enough to understand that. And he's old enough to see that he focuses on the negative and that it's not, it's not objectively true that he has these, I don't use the word cognitive bias, but that's what it's called in, in CBT therapy. And um, we, I'm teaching him about that at a young age. And my daughter's seven, so she's a little bit younger, not quite teaching her the same things about that yet, but we are already starting to talk about moods and how they pass and how most of the things we worry about never come to fruition. And, you know, there are little life lessons. And by the way, some of them I learned from my mother, ironically, but um, (laughs) hopefully I pass on the good stuff, not the bad stuff. Yeah, I think just talking about emotions is huge. Like, Mm -hmm. I think a different generation was just not taught to think about that at all or to talk about it. That's right. a huge difference. I don't know if you all have similar programs in the UK. You probably do. The UK is forward thinking in this way, but we have actually emotional intelligence training at school now. And the kids are learning how to be more emotionally intelligent, recognize emotions, cope effectively with emotions, develop good relationships. And that, that's part of our curriculum now. We're working on doing that in the UK, still kind of petitioning towards mental health education. But I think it, it makes a huge difference. Um, my parents and my brother are teachers and they're saying that just talking to children about expressing emotions has made a huge difference. Yeah. And especially when they learn it from a young age. Exactly. I think when you've written a book like this and written about, you know, mental health in general, you have to do quite a deep dive into your own mental state and your own life. How has that been for you? What kind of lessons have you learned from writing this? It it was a big journey. I had many concerns um, writing it. The first concern was, would it be bad? Um, You know, I'm I'm a writer professionally as well. 
And obviously I write on lots of different topics than this. And mm-hmm. I was concerned that the book wouldn't be of good quality. And also who, who the heck cares about me? It just felt <laughs> self-indulgent. I didn't want it to be boring or self-involved, self-involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it took me a while of having other people read it and have professionals give commentary on it to, to understand that I had done a reasonably good job with it. So I stopped worrying about that quite as much. Then the next thing I worried about was, could I handle most of the people in my life learning about this story when they weren't aware of it before? And how would it Mm. feel to have some of those conversations with people? And then I also worried about hurting people. I mean, there's some people, my mother, I never would have published this while she was alive. Um, She's the primary person that probably would have gotten hurt, but my dad doesn't come off looking stellar at times. Um, my ex-boyfriends mm. don't come off looking stellar at times. Um, and I was worried about hurting those people. So I wanted to make sure that they had a pre-read of it, that they were comfortable with what I was saying, that they didn't feel it was unfair. And I think um, the process of writing the book helped me see that the journey wasn't over. The journey concludes actually in 2008 from the perspective of a good soldier in the book. But really, there's quite a lot that's happened after that that's part of the same evolution. And so originally, I think I was, I I thought that that was kind of a fitting end to my mother's story with me. And I realized over the course of writing the book and living the years afterward that, in fact, the story has continued and I probably could have done a part four and maybe I will someday. But the story was definitely not over there in terms of my development and the impact that my mother's illness had on me, even though she's been dead for 10 years now, it continues to have an everyday impact. And I wish it didn't, but that's just the way it is. What was the reaction like from people that you knew? Because you were saying a lot of people didn't know any of this until the book came out. Surprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guilt was a frequent one um, for people who felt like they should have done something or more or anything, um, should have noticed something. Um, that, that was, I mean, people were not, I, I worried about people feeling sorry for me and I, I didn't get as much of that, which was good. Um, people being activated to pay more attention to their own families and mm. to feel supported. I, a lot of these groups that I spoke at, and I spoke at a lot of mental health groups here in the U S and the reaction there was that people were just so grateful to have someone who understood they, their experience in the book fortunately seems to be reasonably accessible, meaning that people mm. can, it's sort of a one sitting kind of read that people get engrossed in. So they, it's not like it's a chore for them to get through it. And they, they feel like someone understands and that I've come out to some degree on the other side. I mean, yes, I'm definitely not perfect. I've mentioned my struggles, but I am a functional, reasonably successful human being. So it can be done. Your, you, your life doesn't have to be ruined by having a mentally ill parent. And I guess I'm, walking around is proof of that I suppose (laughs) and I think few people are talking about this as well so it makes a huge difference to just have a book like this out there it's definitely not self-indulgent I think it's really necessary thank you yeah I mean that that was the hope I mean it it, it took me I read other books and it took me it takes me usually about six to eight months to write a book and this one took eight years (laughs) and it was because it was because of all the concerns I had and wanting to get it out there as authentically as possible and and not portray myself in a way that seemed not vulnerable or not suffering. Or I think the tendency when you write something like this is to, to be somewhat removed from it. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be so honest 
and that was hard. It was really hard, but mm. I, I think that I did a decent job or at least a semi-decent job. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Readers, you can tell me what you think. I think my final question is, if there's anyone listening and they're a young person or an older person and their parent um, is showing signs of mental illness, what advice would you have for the children? Well, it depends on how old the the children are. I mean, Mm. kids under 15 are not going to really be able to do. Well, for kids under the age of 15, I would say um, reach out to a relative, reach out to a trusted adult and tell them what's, what's happening and see if you can get some assistance. Yeah. And then I would say, um, from the perspective of older kids, get, get your parent professional help, seek, um, community resources can point you, um, in the right direction. I mean, I work a lot with AFSP and NAMI. Um, those are American based organizations, but the UK has similar organizations, um, where you can at least get access to free or really low cost resources, um, for your parent to at least be plugged into the system, um, because untreated mental illness is just a true shame because a lot of times those things can really be helped and, your parents shouldn't suffer alone and it'll help you um, if you're able to secure some additional support from your parent that let's face it, you as a child are not going to be able to give. You're not in the position to give it. You're not a mental health professional. You're not an expert. So seek out um, resources because they are out there. I think that's an important message to end on. Like, I think a lot of times when you're the child and your parent is ill, you feel like you have to be that adult and you have to take care of them. And just hearing like, no, that's not your responsibility. You should ask for help. It's huge. Yeah, that's right. It's not your responsibility. And even as an adult, it's not your responsibility. Um, but you, you can do things to help, but you, you can't insist that that person get well. You may not even be in control. And this is, this is sort of a debatable concept too, but you're not even in control of whether that person lives or dies. I mean, that, that's the decision of that individual. It, and it doesn't mean that if it doesn't go well, that it's your fault. And that's a hard thing, I think, for kids who, who grow up feeling responsible for their parents' well-being, to have it not end well is to think you failed. And to learn that lesson, I think, is, is very important. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally mentally Thanks very much to Ali. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please contact the Samaritans on 116-123 or go to their website at samaritans.org. Thanks very much to Ali for chatting with us today. Thanks very much to Sam Bonham, our producer, and to Lucy Baker for the jingles. If you've liked this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and come join us online. We're on Facebook if you search Mentally Yours. We're also on Twitter at Mentally Yours, your spelt Y-R-S. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.